Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving lane races up the Manufique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Guns in Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup one. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Debra's won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. My fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line locked together, dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Seymour and Light Fingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. G'day, this is Kevin Hillier, and you're listening to the History of the Melbourne Cup. In this series, Brian Martin has sat down and brought us some great highlights, some great colourful characters, some great moments in the history of the Melbourne Cup. But in this edition, we're going to turn the tables a little. Earlier this week, I sat down with Brian and went through his mind and his memories of the history of the Melbourne Cup, according to Brian Martin. Really delighted to welcome this man uh, into the uh, the Cup Week Radio Studios. It is the one and only Brian Martin. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, good thank you. Yeah, it's um, it's nice to be it's nice to be back at the uh, RSN All Three Z Studios because um, I cut my teeth uh, back in Burke Street, forty five Burke Street, when uh, when I first came back. So when was your when, when did you start at RSN or the L three Z? The L three Z about mid June nineteen seventy two. Oh yeah, wow, that far back, and um, I, I go further back. I started my sort of radio career at three uh, AW in nineteen sixty six as the office boy and yep. turntable operator. And then uh, got a gig to uh, be the uh, trainee race caller, uh, straight turntable operator for the breakfast show at 5DN in Adelaide. Yeah. And uh, that's where it started. That's where I got my first call on the wireless. Uh, what was, was your first race? Uh, I called a race at Murray Bridge. The uh, the chief yeah. caller was Kevin Dagg, who came from Victoria, and I was his understudy type of the, the second banana. And I called a race at Murray Bridge and then Strathalbyn and then the dogs and the trots and... But my first meeting on my own was grand final day, 1970, at Mindery Halliburton, uh, which wasn't a TAB meeting, about four hours out of uh, uh, Adelaide, and I went up with the stewards. I didn't have a car, and I was only 20. And, oh, um, good, good. That that was my first gig, like on the on the public address, and uh, I remember looking at the uh, the track, and there was a there was a running rail on the straight. Then there was no rail after they left the straight, and there was a big. Um, uh, harvest like a like a it must have been corn or something that was uh-huh. sort of about five or six feet high across the centre of the track. So when they went down the back, I could just see their caps. <laughs> so that that was uh, that Jeez. was day one. That was uh, day one, and I thought, don't know how I'll go at this, but <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. I uh, I loved it, and uh, that was the only time I went to Mindary Allen. I think Bruce McAvaney might have done one of his first meetings up there, being oh, okay. an Adelaide boy, and then a call from. Three years in Melbourne to come back to uh, to you know when I like to join the team of uh, the great Bert Bryant and Johnny oh, Russell and I thought wow I couldn't wait to get home you yeah. know I, I had some great friends in Adelaide and um, so uh, back home to Camberwell and and we we started at uh, three years in June of nineteen seventy two it was the uh, Kilmore Trots with Johnny Russell and then I had to come race back and do the dogs at Olympic Park that oh night. okay yeah. so now, that's how it all began uh, the, this uh, this series that you've been doing the history of the Melbourne Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the final episode is, is going to be about you, okay, and yeah. going to be about your memories and mm-hmm. how it started for you because yep. you you become it, during this series where the one thing that's come through shiningly is your passion for racing mm-hmm. and your passion for the cup mm-hmm. and you've been the ambassador of recent years and taken the cup all over Australia and you've yeah. seen you've seen the effect that that cup has had when it comes into people's lives, yeah. not on race day, 
We all get to see that. But yeah, you, this you, is the community thing. Yeah, you've yeah. got to see a, 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 a very unique part of it in the last couple of years. Yeah, and it's uh, this year, I this is my sixth year, and I travelled to Georgetown, which is uh, with Andrew Lemon, who's the historian and a great man, and, and, and he's an ambassador as well, but he's a VRC uh, historian, so he knows a lot about racing, but particularly about the Melbourne Cup. And we've had him on the program, as you know, yeah. talking about uh, the trophy and where it evolved from. So we went to Georgetown, we flew to Cairns, uh, we drove from Cairns out to Georgetown about close to five hours out to the Atherton Tablelands and they had, uh, uh, there was a little school, um, a motel, a little police station and two roadhouses. That was it. That's that was it. the town, yeah. That's the town. What's the population? 150. Oh, massive. 150. <laughs> so we stayed at the motel for two nights but we uh, we did all the community things and uh, the, the schools from... The areas around, they'd be some, some 70 and 80 k's away, but yeah. they came in with the local school, the Georgetown school, and they had sort of like a school sports community day. And we had the cup there, and they had some wonderful old collection of uh, trophies and sashes from the racetrack uh, nearby the race course, which uh, had been closed down for about the last 25 years. But there's still the old running rail and the old dirt track and the judges' box. So we yeah. went out there and took the cup out there. and. A lot of the people off the stations came in, the cattle stations, uh, the owners and the, and, the, and the workers, and they came in because it was a bit of a do going on in town, you know. <laughs> so they, they came to the motel on the Sunday night when we arrived and we had the cup there and they had their photos taken. And then that community spirit that um, the cup sort of uh, creates, it's, it's enriching just to be around it, to, uh, to see the reaction, and you know, whether you go to the... Uh, the aged care centre or the kindergarten or the school uh, or out to a farm. Uh, it doesn't matter where you go. Mm. The magnetism of this trophy is unbelievable. Yeah. I've never... And I think it was Rod Fitzroy who sort of created it when he was chairman it to the VRC. And it was built on the back of uh, Wendy Green, uh, you know, taking the cup, taking eight days to get back to Darwin yeah. after <laughs> the, uh, the Cup of 1999. And that's 20 years ago this year. And after that, and Wendy spoke about, you know, travelling with the trophy and uh, the interest that it created every time they'd pull up, they'd get it out the back of the Kingswood and, you know, show it around at the Rose yeah. House or, or a cattle station. And the VRC thought about this and they thought, well, why wouldn't the Cup go on tour? Why wouldn't it uh, travel around to these places, every point of Australia? Why wouldn't it go to New Zealand and why can't we take it to Japan yeah. and to England? You know, so many horses are coming over from, from there and from France. So... It's now travelled and it's a new cup every year created. Next year's has already uh, been uh, released and given to the VRC, so they're always sort of, you know, close to 12 months in advance. And it's uh, gold, uh, it's mined by the ABC Bullion Company and it's on a Jarrah base. And um, you, you take it you take it to any of these places and it's just incredible. Yeah. People want to hold it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and it was just a stroke of genius. Um, and it's travelled... Pretty close to seven hundred thousand kilometres. Good grief! And it's this <laughs> on this this year. Now it, it's been handed over, of course, this week on Cup Day to the winning connections. By the time it got there, it had gone to thirty nine destinations and to six countries. Jeez! And, and and I was at luncheon during the week, and it was there on a table. <laughs> I was at a function with uh, Andrew Hoy and, and his wife uh, and, and a few guests, and. I was hosting and uh, next door we're down at the Stoke House. There was this sort of kerfuffle and noise and clapping and cheering at about half past one just as we were sitting down for our meal. And I thought, what's happened here? And I sort of peered through the curtain. <laughs> it was Danny O'Brien walking in with the Melbourne Company's oh, right. So he plonks it on the table. They had two large tables of owners and breeders and all that. And uh, there it was. I was able to hold the cup without having to put the Michael oh, Jackson yeah, the white gloves on. on. Yeah. yeah, so... Um, and now it'll travel. It'll travel with its owners. It'll go probably back to Queensland where the horse was bred and have a little stint there. And uh, it'll be scratched and dented along the way. But it, there's no trophy like it. There's no, especially in horse racing. Yep. But I don't think there's a sporting trophy that is iconic as this that that sees the world every year before it's handed over to uh, to the keeper to yeah. the owner. So, what year did your love affair with the cup start? Uh 1956, the year of the Olympics. Good year, that. Yeah, great year. <laughs> What's it for you? Was yeah, it? I was born. Well, I was six. <laughs> so I, know, I know. I'm 69. You're uh, 63. 63. Yeah. yeah. You're, a, you're only a, a pup. Um, 
We lived in West Ivanhoe, in Green Street, West Ivanhoe, battling sort of suburb. Dad was a textile cutter. Mum did part-time work at one of the city hotels as a receptionist in the city. And we went to some murder debts around the corner um, in Ford Street. Uh, I was in grade one. And it was Melbourne Cup Day, and I, I just knew that we didn't have to go to school. But uh, through the neighbours in the street, surrounding neighbours, it's when, you know, it was Australia was growing up and it was only sort of, you know... Uh, Ten years after the war, or yeah. not, not even that. So, uh, television came in that year, and only the rich people had TV. We certainly didn't have. We had radio. You yeah. know, radio was king in our house. The Bakelite box. So, Dad said, uh, "I put you all in the sweep. It's uh, it's sixpence. You know, I put you all in and paid for you. And, it, and if you draw the winning horse um, with all the neighbours, we'll draw them all out on on the, the night before the cup, and then we'll listen to the cup." If you get a winning horse, you've gone in for sixpence. I think you, you won a pound or something like that. I thought, wow. He said to my two elder brothers, there's your horse and there's your horse. And he said, Brian, said, yes, Dad. He said, you've got that horse there, evening peel. I said, oh, good. So we've come into the lounge room. We've got to sit down on the floor in the lounge room. The boy, you know, the kids and mum and dad, we only had two chairs in the lounge room. Yeah. <laughs> There's no chance of me getting on one of them. <laughs> and uh, listen, we're going to listen to the Melbourne Cup. So out of this Bakelite box, this radio uh, you know, Bakelite uh, casing and the stations are at the front and you'd have the, the light behind 3UZ, 3DB, 3LO and the valves, the, the, the radio yeah, valves the, yeah. and plugged in, no yep. transistor, plugged into the wall, power. Out of this Bakelite box came this crystal clear description of the cup and I heard, Evening Peel goes on to win the Melbourne Cup. Wow. How about this? Where is this coming? Being six years of age, I tried to climb into the radio and around the back. The man calling this must be five inches high because they must all live in the back of the radio, as you do when you're six, looking for the man doing the description. So hearing that 1956 Melbourne Cup resonated with me like you'd never believe, and that was the spark that uh, ignited the flame. Let's uh, reignite that flame. They're run along towards the three and a half furlongs post and they're homeward bound as they're about to set sail for the judge around the corner where Sir William will be first into the straight with Harnham Hill on the outside and Prince Delville got a saloon passage run on the fence and here's Karana taken to the outside finishing like a shot and they're followed by Sunium fighting first tricky lad and here's Evening Pearl with Red Craze taken to the extreme outside down to the furlong and a half post and Prince Delville in front with Karana joining in on the outside and Evening Peel is going strongly as they reach the furlong post where Evening Peel and Karana the two leaders with Red Craze coming after them it's Karana and Evening Peel settling down to fight it out Red Craze making a valiant effort but Evening Peel in front as they hit the line and Evening Peel one at a neck I'd say to Karana and Neck away, third red craze. We're talking to Brian Martin about the uh, his <laughs> cupping spirit. 1956 evening peel. Now, did you get the pound? I think I did. Uh, for a pound, then you could probably buy three houses. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that 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 was the description. And who would have believed that was? And I'm sure it was three years Ed we were listening to. Who would have thought that? Later on, you'd be working with Bert Bryant, like as a as a race caller in yeah, your twenties. That is uh, amazing. You'd, to you'd think pursue that. that. Yeah. Uh, and I listened to that. So from then on, from going to Parade College um, into grade four when I was nine, grade uh, five when I was ten, uh, and going to the Christian Brothers and then to St. Joseph's Tech in Abbotsford because at one stage I thought I was going to be a carpenter. Um, so I went on to tech school uh, at uh, Abbotsford. But um, even at Parade, we had ovals uh, down at Delphington and uh, at lunchtime I'd get the, the mates, Billy Farrell, Peter Walker and those boys, to run around the oval and this would be 60, 61 and I'd change their names to horses. So Peter Walker became Dorlagiri, Billy Farrell became <laughs> Tullock, um, uh, Michael uh, Gooley, I think his name was, he became Sailor's Guide. So... And I'd have them running around the oval yeah. and, and I'd have a race call. I'd do a couple of race calls. So, And you found a kid in the class or a couple of kids in the class that had an interest in horse racing. So I couldn't get enough of it. And everything I, I, I picked up, it'd either be buying the Turf Monthly magazine or yep. the racetrack in years to come or buying the Sporting Globe on Saturday night or, or listening to the radio. You know, I, I became a great listener of the race callers, the turf shows on Saturday morning, uh, always writing the selections down. Uh, reading the Herald when the Herald would come out twice on a, on, a, on an afternoon, the early yeah. edition and the final. So you had this sort of way of absorbing 
everything you could read about racing, everything you could uh, hear about racing. Jeff Lane was my pin-up. He was, he was the golden boy of racing, only passed away earlier this year, a, a champion rider, yeah. movie star looks, and people loved him, and he was, he was a hero of racing. Had you been to the track at this, no, this stage? No, oh, no. Okay. Um, the first time I went to the track, I, I reckon was probably about 61, 62, but I remember going to the 63 Melbourne Cup, and, and so I would have been 13. So we must have had – school must have, uh, must have given us a day off. My brother Ken, who's a couple of years older, and we went to the – and we thought Gadam Gadam could win the, the Melbourne Cup this year. You're about 16 to 1. And I was only a little guy because at one stage I thought I might be a jockey. I wasn't terribly tall. Yeah. And I thought it would be a natural transition if I can't call races. I'll go and ride them. Yeah. Uh, so I remember my brother hoisted me up on the top of a, uh, a pie stall uh, just past the winning post. It was like one of those steel structures with the canvas around the awning. Yeah. And they, they had the pie warmers and they selling pies, 4 and 20 pies. And I got up at the back to elevate myself so I could see up the straight. And we're on Gadam Gadam. So uh, we're cheering Gadam Gadam home and Gadam Gadam hits the front and Jimmy Johnson and go, go Gadam Gadam, jumping up and down. I've gone straight through the roof of the pie stall, <laughs> landed on top of the pie warmer, oh. surrounded by Angus beef and sausage rolls. <laughs> <laughs> the kid uh, cheering home Gadam Gadam. This was 1963, so that, that uh, left a real impression uh, in my mind as well. Did you get a foot up the backside? For I think I did. I got yeah. thrown out of the pie yeah, already sure very did. quickly, but yes. had the Winning ticket. You could bet them when you were kids. Absolutely. Let's have a listen to that. Uh, 1963. Very memorable Melbourne Cup. With about three and a half furlongs to run, it's Baroda Glean, the leader, as they came down towards the turn. Battle Standard has shot up very fast now, and as they rounded the turn for home, it's Battle Standard and Baroda Glean matching strides in front of Gadam Gadam. They're followed by Alpen Sea, Water Outers, Marchand, and into the picture came Summer Region, and sometime down the outside with a long, with a rattling run, running down towards the furlong and a half, and Gadam Gadam went to the front from Battle Standard. Marchand is coming home well, and then a Long followed by Conference Summer Region has gone and Grand Print with a long run, but Gadam Gadam is clear with a half furlong to go, is holding the opposition, and it's a Bolters Cup. It's Gadam Gadam going to win the money. Oh, and we've just heard the kids falling through at the top of a uh, pie, the pie stand just past the finish post. Left on the pie warmer. <laughs> Someone help that kid. He's got a winning ticket in his claw. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, Destined to do it. It was in my blood then. I and I remember Mum used to go to the uh, the Oaks on uh, on the Thursday with her girlfriends, and they'd get the bus and off they go to Flemington. Dad wasn't really a racing person. But, was he uh, keen for you to? Did he uh, like the idea? Of I, he, he loved the idea that of what I was doing. He loved all that. And when I got it, uh, you know, went on radio auditions in '66 and three years ahead, and called the uh, Memorial Mile. One by Storm Queen from the Saturday before. So it was about the 9th of December, 1966, we went to air. And John McMahon introduced me. I was 16. I sounded like a mouse, you know. Um, here's Brian Martin from Camberwell. Uh, Brian, it, uh, it's your intention to try and be a, a race caller? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing now? Well, I'm the first year apprenticeship of be, to be a builder, a carpenter, but I'd like to be in Brian. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and I remember we had the acetate disc of that was still going. Oh, I know. And I sound like a mouse. Yep. You know, and uh, but I I stood up there and it was a lie. Did you have the very precise speaking voice at that stage or not? Oh Where, no. Did you have one of those? No, no, no. no. no you couldn't buy them. Oh, okay. Um, and John McMahon was an old radio man. Radio three years at auditions. You know that was Johnny McMahon. Yeah. And they had a live audience. So you stood there with your hands cut behind your back oh. and parrot fashion. I called, stop, queen, <laughs> and got three gongs and two dollars, which is the top award. Wow. So, you know, a career was launched. Here you go. Uh, so off I went to 3AW and um, had a couple of years there. And then from there to Adelaide in 1970 and two years there. And then a call to come back to 3AZ. Now, when did you call your first cup? Uh, by chance in 1981. And there's a story here. <laughs> there's always a story with things yeah. I do. Um, Frank O'Brien was the call, was the, doing the call for the stations that weren't the racing stations. Like you had 3DB, 3UZ and the ABC, yep. designated race callers, and they'd have a racing service every Saturday. So 
you know, radio back then and even further back, 3XY and stations, there'd be four or five stations doing the races every Saturday. Yeah. This is back in the 50s. Yeah. Um, so at that stage in the early 80s, there were the ABC, the two commercials, UZ and DB, and you had Bert Bright and Bill Collins, like, you know, and, and Joe Brown. I wow. Mean, the greatest that we've had in our time. Um, so Frank O'Brien was going to feed the stations. FM, I don't think FM had started in 81. Had just. Just, yeah. yeah it might have just. And... Uh, Frank O'Brien, who's the course caller, was going to the original course caller at the um, Flemington in Moody Valley, was going to do the, the the feed for those commercial stations that weren't taking the race callers from the, the normal service. But he he was doing breakfast with the stars at Moody Valley a couple of weeks earlier, and he slipped coming out of the tower when he was doing the, the call on course, and fell down and broke his leg, Ooh. so he couldn't get into the broadcast box with a broken leg. So I came off the bench to call for those stations. So I did, and I've got the tape somewhere, Just a Dash winning the Melbourne yeah. Cup in 1981. So that was a massive thrill. But I was a bit disappointed because it wasn't going to the station that I was working at, which yeah. is it. But the first, um, the first Melbourne Cup then uh, was when Bill Collins retired in 88, at Easter Saturday 88, and I took over Easter Monday 88, and we were at 3DB. And then we came to 3UZ, and no, we're at 3UZ by then. We'd gone from DB, I was at DB for four years, uh, understudy to Bill, and then we came to UZ. He retired, and I, and I got that first call, which was um, 1988. I remember Jill, my wife, came out, and uh, Rebecca and Tim came out because it was such a special occasion. Yeah. We've got photos of them. How did that feel taken over from Bill? Uh, I was pretty nervous about it. Oh, I was pretty nervous bet. about it, but I just knew... Regardless of how you felt about it, people would compare me yep. uh, to Bill, yep. and that's just human nature. And he was the accurate one, arguably one of the greatest of all time. So I didn't, I didn't think I'd, I'd ever be able to reach those heights. But I, I made sure that I wasn't a clone of Bill. I wanted to make sure, and I've always sort of, sort of taken this stand that uh, when I called a race, I wanted to be the same voice that's talking to you now. Yeah. So. You know, I oh, gave you, from, you achieved that. Yeah, and I yeah. never wanted that twang of a lot of race callers uh, develop over the years. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to be sort of uh, be talking to you. And, yes, Kevin, uh, this is the 1980 Melbourne Cup, uh, and they're in the starting gates, and they're all set to go, and they're yeah. racing. You know what I mean? So I wanted to be able to just have that transition and and be me. Yeah. And whether, whether people accepted it or not. But oh, I had to, no, I had to identify myself, you know. Yeah. No, they uh, accepted it. And, uh, and you did a, a, I mean, you underplay yourself, uh, because that's sort of like, yeah, but you're uh, one of the best callers. Let's have a listen to that 1988 Melbourne Cup. They've got 850 metres to go and Orthal, the leader in the Melbourne Cup. Brent Thompson attempting to lead all the way a length and a half to Empire Rose. She's still travelling well. A length further back then. Our Classic Bay pulled to the outside, Copper Tonic. Then further back was Narbotto followed by Might. Kenzai went back to the rail and Natsuki has pulled right to the outside. In the straight and Empire Rose raced easily to Orthal. 400 to go. The jockey sitting against Empire Rose now on the outside of Polo Run. Then Narbotto followed down the outside by Natsuki with a great run going to the front as Empire Road. Natsuki and Apollo run the challenges but the great mare Empire Rose in front. Stride by stride Natsuki wearing it down. Empire Rose a neck in front. Natsuki trying to pick it back. Empire Rose in front of the Melbourne Cup. Empire Rose. Empire Rose a nose to Natsuki. Three lengths away. Third is Narbotto. There you go. The 1988 Melbourne Cup. Um... Yeah, it was a half head, so it was a, it was a brave call to go from this. <laughs> I had no doubt it had won. And my son, Tim, said, he said, not a bad call, Dad. He said, but you called Empire Rose, Empire Road at the 200 metre mark. He said, you stuffed it up. <laughs> <laughs> a a taskmaster. A, a very tough man. Very, very tough, tough man. man. <laughs> um, the, 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 the pressure that comes with the Melbourne Cup and the figures and the numbers of people who are listening to it, which has grown and grown every year, mm. but the importance of that, your hometown cup... Did that? Did that? Did you think about that? Yeah, or what did you... that really did resonate with me because I thought, here we are, and it, uh, and for some reason there were different things that sort of would trigger uh, something inside me. And, and my mum was alive at the time, and she used to love going to the races, and she'd be down in the elms with her girlfriends, and and there, there was one thing, and I remember talking to the management here at Three Z at the time. I said, "There's one thing that just sort of does set me off," and it, we used to have the pipes, the pipe bands coming down the straight. Yep. And when they were coming down the straight about 40 minutes before the cup, you knew the race 
was about to happen. Showtime. Yeah. And they, they got rid of that, sadly. But it was something about it. It was special. And it, it sort of took you into another zone to know that, you know, we're 30, 40 minutes out, we're 30 minutes out. And, uh, you know, you'd always go and have a nervous one out the back of the toilet. <laughs> and I'd invariably run into Greg Miles over the years. <laughs> g'day, mate. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. <laughs> and you'd wish each other well. And then you, you went back and you'd lock the door. And sometimes there'd be a help with you over the years. Um, <clears throat> but more often than not, you'd be in that box on your own. Yeah. Because once the race, you you went into the preamble of the, the, the lead up to the race, which would be, you know, they might John Verding it across to you uh, at the time and it's say, now the 1992 Melbourne Cup, here's Brian Martin. So you knew then you're on your own. There was no, you know, someone else on a panel with you. It was you and the race. And you virtually put yourself into a cocoon and you'd zip up the cocoon and you say, well, this is it. This is it. Yeah. Uh, enjoy it. You'll get it right because you, you're pretty good at it because you've been doing it for a long time. If you weren't good at it, you wouldn't be here today yeah. doing it. They'd have removed you. Enjoy it. Um, you know the colours. You've been watching the colours. The imports have come in. You've been able to track those. Give it your best shot. Um, and then it's all over in three minutes and 28 seconds. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember one particular year in the early years, uh, the crowd sort of roared coming down the straight and it just took my attention away from the leaders and they're actually cheering the clerks on the, on the ponies coming down because <laughs> the clerks, of course, had come down late and come down and, and the, the big crowd just oh, give them the, the Bronx cheer and I thought something's happened and they were swinging out of the straight and I went back and looked back towards the winning post. What's happened? Those things can break your, your attention span. So uh, you then, you know that your breathing is, uh, is critical and it's virtually, you're, you're very much in the mould of the horse and the jockey because the horse has to get his breathing right and his adrenaline is pumping like mad. So is the jockey when the gates fly so back. So is yours. So is a, so, so are we. Racing, you know, racing and you're up there. Then you've got to come down and just level out and get the breathing right. And that's what the horses have got to get in their rhythm and their breathing's got to be correct and just take their time. Same with the riders, they take formation. So you go into that sort of idling up the side. There's not a great deal of action up by the riverside over towards Chiquita Lodge. And the furthest point away from the broadcast box at Flemington is probably about the 650 metre mark. That's the furthest point. And that's when a lot of runs are starting to to come and there's a bit of a wave starting to happen. And you might even refer to the television if the picture's a little closer than the the strong binoculars you're using. And more often than not, the binoculars are shaking because (laughs) you're trying to hold them together. You've got 24 colours, sets of colours, and you're you're spinning them out robotic style. And, you know, you come to one and you think, now what's that? I can only see the cap. So you might go for the old line of, uh, you know, Kevin Hillier moving up on the outside of RSN, then going up on the outside, making good ground, coming into the picture. That's when your, your, your eyes are scanning, oh, it's Tabco. Tabcorp coming yeah. into the picture, you know, so it finds it for you. It's relayed to your mouth, and you can sort of continue on. So, and your call is building and building and building so much so that when they turn for home, you're on the turn of the Melbourne Cup. You're up at that pitch, but you've still got to save something for the finish, and you've got to make sure and you're conscious you're not becoming hysterical and screaming, yeah. so that you're not even audible. Yeah. So that's all the build-up from the jump away, and, and you can probably appreciate what I'm saying about the build-up of the horse, the horse getting stronger, stronger, the rider, you know, planning his move. He knows he's got to be at top speed, probably about 200 metres from home. Don't go too early. Yeah. Same with the callers. Yeah, Don't yeah, go exactly. too early. Yeah, the rhythm of, uh, of the calling rhythm. is a really important yeah, thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly, whether it be a sprint race or... Uh, the, the Warnable Grand Annual, which takes about six and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, is, it a, is it a good experience at the time or is it an anxious experience? Uh, a combination of both. Uh, you like to get it right. And um, I remember Dunedin, and I was calling for uh, SEN at the time, uh, Dunedin winning, uh, and it got the photo finish over Red Cadeau, and it was the tightest margin. Oh, nose. yeah. And I went for it on the line. Dunedin's one of the nose. Um, and I thought to myself... Do I hope I'm right? Because I don't want to be wrong. It's the Melbourne Cup. And I had gone the wrong way in 1997 when Might and Power led. Doremus came at him. And I said, they hit the line. And I was about to say dead heat. I paused and Greg Hall threw his arm up with the whip. And I thought, that's the lead. He reckons he's won. I reckon he might have. 
I said, maybe Doremus and O's, and it went the other way to Might and Power. Doremus was in front before and after the line. And that, that sort of, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, no one knew anyway. And I thought, no, nah, but yeah, I, when I caught up with Greg Hall about a month later, I grabbed his arm and broke it. <laughs> Into three pieces. Yes, yes. So well, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been the first person. <laughs> I was a in a queue. Of, there was a lot of people when Hawley went the early crow there that yeah. uh, that didn't forgive him for that. So, yeah, so that was uh, that was the cup, and, and um, yeah, there's a there's there's an incredible sense of you know, relief when it's over, and I think the 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 days it really where you are flat as a biscuit are the next day is yeah, the worst day and yeah. quite often I'd have to go to Kyneton and call the Kyneton Cup and I I just couldn't do it because every bit of adrenaline is zapped out of you. The, you know, the ridiculous thing in many ways is that uh, and I would think because I've never done it to learn the twenty four colours to me would be hard enough anyway. But you've already done six or seven races oh, before yeah, that and yeah. then you got two or three after it. Yeah, there's no rest. So it's not like you get a chance to go. Oh, there's Melbourne Cup. I'll pop the champagne cork and go for the. You You've got yeah. more work to do, yeah. which is it's quite, it's quite a demand. It's an incredibly demanding day. And I remember uh, we had Matty uh, Jones working with us, and I, I'm surprised they don't give uh, Matt Hill now an assistant to do a couple of earlier races, and particularly the race after the Cup. Yep. Give him a chance because it's it's a massive build-up. And when the studio's crossed to you, you've got to be ready, as yep. you can appreciate in radio, and, and yep. you're doing radio and TV, uh, and you've got to make sure the link is, you know, is smooth. Um, yeah, and, and I think when you reflect back and it's over and, and you're happy with it, like it's set in stone, you can't change it. You can't go back and say, well, we wouldn't want to have another crack at that. <laughs> uh, and you hope you've captured every bit of it, uh, the excitement of it. And, and one particular one was uh, 2002, um, and that was Damien Oliver yep. with Media Puzzle and the, the tragedy around that, losing his brother about seven days before. You spoke to Damien mm. in, in this mm. series about the history of the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. Uh, it is it is one that has resonated with everybody. Yeah, I think it was one, it sort of left the realm of racing to be one of the great sporting stories, one of the m most memorable sporting stories, and it happened to be around the horse race, the Melbourne Cup. And he rode, when I reflect back and watch that replay and remember calling the race, he was never going to be beaten. Was it divine intervention from above? I think it might have been. Yeah. I think it might have been because he, he was in a winning position in those yellow colours and he was backed into favouritism. Um, conditions were right. Ollie had been having a stinking day riding on the Derby days. He said to me in, in the Melbourne history of the Melbourne Cup interview, he said, I just wasn't focused. He, he said, I probably shouldn't have been riding, but he said, I think I've got a place getter uh, and a couple of others I slaughtered. He said, I just, I wasn't in the space. Uh, and this is what show it, it, it's the the defining moment of a great sportsman. He rose, and that X factor came through. Mm. He just gave the horse a peach of a ride, a twelve out of ten, as we say. Yeah. Uh, and he and the emotion around that. I remember the riders coming up, putting their arm around him, tapping him on the helmet with their whip, uh, calling out to him, and to be broadcasting after the race description, to be broadcasting as a as a commentator that moment and describing what you're seeing and people watching it on TV as well. I had a tear streaming down the oh, cheek. Oh, yeah, I think and, everyone did. And I thought, this is, this is one for Hollywood. This is an amazing thing that we're seeing here. How has this guy held this together and won the greatest race in Australia and one of the greatest races in the world? Yeah. Was never going to be beaten um, and maybe it was help from above. Yeah, let's have a listen. 2002 Melbourne Cup. Media Puzzle is wider out on the track and they're followed out wider by Beekeeper and Distinctly Secret coming around the turn in the Melbourne Cup. Hatherin has gone. Pugin struggling. It's Vinnie Rowan. Media Puzzle at the 400 metre mark. Two and a half in front of Beekeeper. Then further back, Pentastic from Distinctly Secret. But Media Puzzle at the 300 metre mark has kicked clear from Vinnie Rowe. Down the middle is Beekeeper. Pentastic, Mr Prudent. And then came Distinctly Secret. Damien Oliver with an angel riding on his shoulder for his brother Jason. Media Puzzle is safely home. He's got the cup one from Mr. Prudent. Media Puzzle takes the Melbourne Cup by two and a half. Mr. Prudent, third home as beekeeper. Brian Martin, we're talking about mm. the history of the Melbourne Cup. That was 2002. That's a lovely line. That's a beautiful line with an angel on his shoulder. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't rehearsed. Um, it just, to me, it looked as though it was happening. It, it looked as though there was guidance coming. You're saying, I'm going to get you home safely. Yep. You know, I'm riding with you. And he rode his, he used his brother's breeches to ride in. And it had it all. It had it all. And even when you talk to Damien now, and that was 2002, so 
believe it or not, sort of 17 years on, it's hard to believe it's that, that far back. Uh, Damien still sheds a tear when he talks about his brother, and, and you would too. There, yeah. was, there was great love. Um, his brother was slightly older, but uh, they were inseparable as kids. And he'd lost his brother, his father as well, in yeah, a race fall. Right. So the tragedy that sort of had uh, beset the, the family, you can't imagine. So, uh, yeah, once that was sort of done and dusted, you reflect back. And now even listening to that call again, I think, gee, that was a, that was a, a moment in time that I'll never forget. Yeah, and it does. It, does, it, it makes you emotional. Very much so, yeah, very much absolutely. so. Yeah, and, he, and he, how he did it, the power that, you know, he was able to gain to do that is extraordinary. Oh, dude, it staggers me, I must say. Uh, you've selected the 2017 Melbourne Cup as one to talk about as well. Why yeah, that one? Because uh, it was the last one. Yeah. Yeah, it was number 29. Number twenty nine in my collection. Had you decided that that was that, were, that you you didn't want to do any more, or yeah, I sort of uh, I was you know I was sixty seven and very few have gone that far. I might have been the oldest to you know to go uh, to call a Melbourne. Come on, I'm not too sure, but I think I might be close. And uh, it was becoming a bit more of a chore. And was probably all. It wasn't just working with me and Turfy and KB. No, I it? loved it. I loved that. No, that, not because you're sitting here now. That was that was one of the most enjoyable periods of my my career working with you guys uh, because it was fun. Yeah, we had fun, and you you weren't going to cut me off and go to Rose Hill and, and go to Werribee and moving up at Cranbourne and raising Horsham dogs. You know what I mean? So we could just lay back and the KB and the, the Turfy down on site with you, and uh, we had fun. Yeah, we, we had did. fun. And, and it worked. It seemed to work. People liked it. And I was sort of, uh, I was the most relaxed I'd ever been in calling through those periods. Uh, I loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. And I suppose, um, and I remember it was uh, rekindling, yep. and it was one for Lloyd, who I, I know well, uh, Melbourne boy, and he's now owned six Melbourne Cup winners and nearly got it with uh, Master of Reality. Won't yeah. go there. <laughs> Sad story. Uh, so... Yeah, so uh, that was the one, and, and I'd said to my wife, uh, I said to Jill, I think uh, that morning when I left very early, I said, yeah, I think this might be the last one. She said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I think so. She said, oh, why don't you go to 30? I said, no, I just, I think I'm done. Yeah. I think I'm done. I'll give it my best and shot. And you announced it on air and surprised them, but geez, out of all of us, I must say. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I surprised the management at this time. At, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. SEN, Hasn't we got another year to go? Yeah, check the contract, <laughs> and uh, they were good. They were, they were very good. Um, but I just thought, no, nah, it's, it's a young man's game. Uh, and, you know, Kev, there was no, no more challenge. There was, you know, I'd called... 29 of the Cups and 28 Cox Plates and Caulfield Cups yeah. and my own horse winning two Cox Plates. Yeah. I'd called in nine different countries around the world, every state of Australia. There was no real mountain still t t to get over the top of. I thought, yeah, I'm happy with this lot. Um, I don't have to tell anyone. I'll just say, I'm done. That's yeah. good. Uh, see you later and catch you, catch right. you soon. It was rekindling. Rekindling on the inside of it, followed by Amelie Star. Al Mandon doing nothing. And on the outside there, running past it is Big Duke. Further back then, Libran as they come towards the home turn. And on the move now is Marmello going up to Sismontaine. Tiberian joining in. Now getting out is Johannes Vermeer into the clear. Off the track is single gaze and Amelie Star. The leader is Marmello in the cup into the straight now from Sismontaine. Max Dynamite weaving through. Here on the outside, Johannes Vermeer coming up from Tiberian. Tiberian and rekindling out of the pack. Rekindling Big Duke and going after Johannes Vermeer. But he's got a good turn of foot, Johannes Vermeer. He sprinted two lengths in front. Rekindling coming after him from Max Dynamite. Johannes Vermeer in front. Rekindling starting to peg him back on the outside. Rekindling getting to Johannes Vermeer. Rekindling getting its nose in front of Johannes Vermeer. Rekindling. Rekindling wins the Melbourne Cup. Certainly did. And that was that. Yeah. Was that. Yeah, that was that, and uh, I listen now compared to sort of, you know, 25 years ago, and I was a bit faster, uh, like, like probably sportsmen do, and you think, yeah, there were a lot of internationals coming in, and I think Lloyd, might have been the year before, had seven in the race with different caps, and, you know... What a nightmare that yeah, must they, have they were cool. tough. They were tough, and I thought, this is only going to increase... You know, do I need to put myself through this sort of stress and, and worry? Why? Why, why? why do you want to keep doing this? Yeah, and, and that particular year he had uh, the standard form formula uh, colours were the navy blue, white armbands, white cap. Yep. Then he changed the next one to a red cap, then a blue cap, yes. then a yellow cap, 
and then there was another couple, but no green. No green. But one of those horses was a grey, thank God. <laughs> it didn't, you have to worry about the colours, you the bloody horse. Uh, so they, you know, and that's going to happen again. It'll happen with, um, you know, Godolphin with yeah. you know, their, their blue and their different reds and yellows and those caps too. So that's an enormous amount of stress. It really is. So, and when you, when you look back, you think, oh, gee, you have to do that again, you know. When you call, it's, it's a totally different uh, way of watching the race and, mm. and, and mm. enjoying the races. So you're now able to sit back and actually enjoy the races like you did back in the, in the pre-calling days when you were a kid? Yeah, I, I find myself, uh, Nearly calling, calling when, when I'm watching them. Yeah. Uh, and you, 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 they'll, they'll be going on the bank. You say, this leader's travelling right outside the leader of so and so. It's just, <laughs> it's ingrained in you. Yeah. You know, it's, you've been doing it for as long as you can, you've been breathing. Um, and, you know, when, when I think back with my brother and I, um, we had plastic horses on a string. There were eight horses, uh, and it was about a metre and a half long, yep. the track. It was called race play. And the, the little plastic horses had jockeys on the back. Yeah. And I'd put, band-aids on them and coloured them in for the horses at the time. <laughs> so we'd have a race meeting in the bedroom every yeah. night and Dad would say, come on, you know, lights out, it's 10 to 10, that's the last race, you know. <laughs> okay, Dad, <laughs> racing in the final. And we would have our race meeting and my brother Ken, uh, through ill health, had to, as a young man, had to move to a warmer climate and move to Brisbane and then Townsville. But he was the race caller. When we'd go out and when we'd do the plastic horses and things like that, he'd be the caller and I'd be the, I'd get to call the last race or something oh, okay. in our little race meetings. But he never pursued it, um, just the way the cards f- fell and he became a jeweller. Yep. Uh, but never actually, never physically called a race, uh, but called the plastic horses on the string. Wow. But uh, I went the other way. I kept going, yeah. kept going and kept going. So we laugh about that and uh, laugh about the times of getting on the train with a suitcase and the tape recorder in the in the suitcase and the little Japanese binoculars and finding an empty box at Flemington or Caulfield and the stars would be there and the boxes further down the aisle. Yeah. Mr. Bryant had walked past and Mr. Collins and Mr. Brown yeah. and they'd say, G'day, son. And, well, <laughs> he actually looked at me. He looked at me, you know. Yeah, no, so uh, you, you, you reflect back now and you think, Gee, the journey's the journey's been um, it's been a it's been a terrific journey and and a privilege to do it. Uh, mm. Because I was doing something I loved. Yeah. I never tired of going to work. Uh, there were days you'd have a hangover, you might have had a big the night the night before, and no one knew. That was the beauty of radio. Yeah. Um, particularly for the Warnable Carnival yeah. <laughs> with oh. Johnny Russell. Oh dear. Um, Johnny, we we nicknamed him the Warnable Moth. He used to settle where <laughs> he saw a light, <laughs> and some of those nights, you know, they. Night had turned into morning, and we'd have to do ten races or nine races, and you know you think, oh my god, I can't, I can't even identify these horses. Let alone yeah. call this bloody herd or race them first. <laughs> and JR was too crook to do it, so I'd get the gig, <laughs> and we got through, and no one knew. Well, a few people who had been with us the night before knew, but that's um, that. They were the fun times of yeah. radio, and fun times of being at the racetrack and the characters and. The people, the stage show that racing was, it's different now. It's very, very different. People are too serious now. It's, yep. um, and, and I'm glad I was a part of the glory days yep. and, and in my role, just in my role, because you come out of the box and spend some time standing in the ring, maybe having a bet or just chatting to the yep. characters. And it was a stage show. The characters and the stories you heard, uh, and I'll take those to my grave because they were fabulous times, fabulous times. And and, and people, the camaraderie was great. You knew yeah. the jockeys, you knew the trainers, and everyone was sort of going for the same goal to try and eat a living out of it all. I, I you know, My pay packet was guaranteed every week for the radio station, but the jockeys would have a good run and then be on the bones of their kyber and they, yeah. could, you know, they couldn't get a ride. You know, it works yep. with their weight and the same with the trainers that have a good run and there'd be betting plungers and... It was a fabulous time to be in racing and to be part of that theatre of racing. Yeah. And and we've often had this conversation about uh, racing can bring – you can have the Queen sitting in a box somewhere and then you yep. can have, you know, the Prime Minister sitting somewhere else. Then you can have uh, a, a bloke who digs ditches and a bloke who delivers the garbage and a bloke who's <laughs> – it, it, it is the great melting pot of yeah. uh, humanity in many ways. Yeah, exactly. Look at uh, Joe Janiak with Takeover Target. He paid $1,650 at his yeah, dispersal sale and finished up meeting the Queen because uh, the horse won at Royal Ascot. 
And being the winning trainer at the feature race, he was invited to come up and meet Her Majesty and have afternoon tea. Lovely. Which he did. There's Joe, the taxi driver from Queen Bears. Yes. G'day, love, how are you? <laughs> and apparently he tells the story, which uh, is, is true. He's, uh, he said, I went in, he said, a lovely lady, and she knows her racing, knows her racing, as you know. And he said, um, she, was, she, she was fantastic. She was so engaging. And he said, she had this crappy old sort of TV uh, you know, like monitor to, to watch the races. And anyway, it went on the blink. And she said, the most conversation must have gone, oh, Mr. Janiak, do you know much about fixing televisions? <laughs> There's Taxi Joe around the back, <laughs> belting them back to try and get oh, the reception. Oh, goodness me. And he tells that story. Uh, and, and that's what racing does. It brings people together from all walks of life. Robert Sangster once said that famous line, all men are equal on the turf and under it. Yeah. And it's so true. Yeah, it is so true. true. Uh, you know, and the, the beauty of this great race, the Melbourne Cup, which is now the International Staying Championship, Kevin Hillier and Brian Martin can have a horse that might have cost five grand, six grand in Barrier 3, Sheikh Mohammed in Barrier 4 from Godolphin, Coolmore in Barrier 6 with three of their entries with Joseph and Patrick O'Brien, yeah. uh, Aidan O'Brien. Uh, so it, it's all equal. We all get a chance. Racing uh, is for the elite pretty well in England. Um, yeah. It's dominated pretty well by the big stables in Ireland. Hong Kong, it's for the elite. Japan, certainly. And it's hard for the battler or a couple of blokes to get a city get together to sort of get into the into the sport. It's too tough. Yeah. Australia has that. And that's that's why we are the lucky country. We can hang on to that because it's in our DNA of when, and I've said this to you many times, when the explorers came here and they said we're going to build a town coming from the west to the east or something. We'll build a town here. There's what the water supply and there's good cover from the trees and, and, and the, the, land, the, the, the soil is good. They'd build a church, they'd build a pub and they'd build a race course. <laughs> and that's, that's how it developed. Yeah. Or part of it. It's been fantastic uh, reminiscing about your memories of the Melbourne Cup. We've thoroughly enjoyed this series too. It's been great, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, look, I think we might be coming back and doing it again next year. I, I hope so because... There's there was, so many stories oh, to tell. Yes. We've just, just scratched the surface. Yep. And uh, I want to get on the road and uh, and go into state to talk to the people that uh, I know that sort of are getting on in years and their story has to be told. Yeah. Once we have their story, it's in stone. Yeah, good stuff. And it, it's, a, it, it's a storytelling race uh, and you'd, you'd sort of bump into people and they'd say, um, my brother actually rode in that Melbourne Cup in 1958. He was working as a brickies labourer, but he, uh, he rode at the picnics and he got a licence and anyway, they brought a horse down from Canberra and he got the ride. How'd he go? Oh, he ran last and he was 400 to 1, but we all went there to watch him yeah. parade and he rode in the Melbourne Cup. Or he's, he's, you know, my uncle actually trained the winner of the Melbourne Cup. Everywhere you go, there's a connection. Yeah. A connection. That's the beauty of it. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Ken. Been lovely catching up. Good on you, mate. Still in front of the 300, led frontier boy, a length and a half further back, Vintage Crop. He's coming home, the Irish Galloper. Tiakau Nick is in front of frontier boy. Vintage Crop is a danger, and great vintage is late. Tiakau Nick, but Vintage Crop has got him. Vintage Crop, the Irish horse will win the Melbourne Cup. Vintage Crop, two links, Tiakau Nick just held second. Mercator flashed up for third. Mick, it uh, doesn't seem like over 25 years that uh, you changed the Melbourne Cup forever in 1993, coming home on Vintage Crop. How does it feel reflecting back now? I probably, at the time, I didn't uh, uh, realise the enormity of it, um, of the race and the occasion and what it, it means uh, uh, and, and what it means now. Um, you know, it's it's taken a while for it to sink in, and a few trips back uh, to 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 see what a great uh, occasion the Melbourne Cup is, um, and you have to be there and uh, and witness it firsthand to realise what an occasion it is. We in Australia say that that winter vintage crop in 1993 changed the race forever. Um, it was sponsored by Fosters at the time. The horse was such an icon to uh, Irish racing and he spent all his time after retirement at the National Stud uh, in Ireland. Um, what sort of impact did it have when you, you came back uh, back to your home country? Um, it was a little bit 
I was based in Hong Kong for six months at the time, so I didn't really get back straight away here. Um, but it was a big, it was a big reaction back home here on the in the media. It got a, you know, the Racing Post and all the racing uh, media gave a great coverage, and um, I got a, a great reaction in Hong Kong. Actually, when I went back after winning it, um, uh, because they had telecasted live. At, um, to Happy Valley, um, so yeah, it's uh, my wife. My wife wasn't there; she was watching it uh, at Happy Valley, and yeah, it was it went down really well. He he wasn't he wasn't as big at odds in Hong Kong as he was in, in Melbourne. <laughs> the the race, I remember the day calling the race. It was a a gloomy day. It was a soft track. Came up a bit on the soft side. What sort of run did you have? I just remember you coming out of the pack with about less than 400 to go and he was staying on so well. Yeah, he started really well and I got a, got a nice position. Um, it just took him a little while at the time to, to get used to the contact, you know, the way they, they race tight in Australia, they're all sort of touching one another and it wasn't until he went around past the winning posts and we done the back stretch there where he settled into a lovely rhythm and I got in a nice position behind, right up behind Frankie, so I, I, I didn't have to watch what was ahead of me, I was happy parked there, so I don't need to concentrate what was around me, and uh, from that point I was having a lovely run, um, I hoped Frankie uh, uh, would tow me into the race at the t- uh, from there, and Frankie sort of really didn't, but the spits came nicely for me, and uh, from about the, the five pole to the four, we were making just nice progress, and um, I had I'd been told not to not to make my move before the clock tower. Uh, Ron Quinton and Kevin Moses were pals of mine at the time. You know that was the the, the, additive, the advice. It's don't don't make your move before then. And I I was sort of made my move from there. And from that point, I, even though I had a good bit of ground to make up, Tiago Nick had sort of broken a bit clear off the front. Um, I always felt I was going to win once I got into once he got him out and he, he changed changed legs and 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 hit a, a hit top gear and, and and I was I was really flying home yeah. He was well on the market. Uh, he was a popular runner. Could you hear the crowd? Could you hear the roar? Uh, I was just concentrating, getting down past that winning post. You're aware of it, but you don't ever because if if you can hear that, you're not paying attention. You know, <laughs> you're 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 in your own zone, um, and. Uh, yeah, it was it was a great feeling to get there in front here. Yeah. What about the reception coming back? Yeah, I wasn't see, I, I I wasn't aware that I had to be the first back in in uh, as uh, as tradition has it in, in Australia. So I, they had to shout me up uh, to, to get the head of affairs uh, to, to walk back in the, the long walk up past the roses there, and it, it was uh, it was an unbelievable um, reception, you know. Um, uh, the noise was was deafening, but it was it was fantastic. Yeah, something I'll never forget. And out of the crowd, we saw Irish flags. Yeah, yeah, there was the Irish came to the fore. Yeah, there was. Uh, I somebody handed me a little uh, a little Irish flag coming up, and uh, I still have it. Um, and yeah, it's tr- truly memorable day. Celebrations continued. Yeah, we. Uh, yeah, we. I was I was struggling with the next day. <laughs> I can assure you, the, the media I, I wasn't aware, but the media were going mad trying to find me. Um, I, and uh, eventually they got me. Um, uh, but yeah, you know it was great great reception. You're looking fantastic. Are you enjoying retirement? You, you look as though you look as though you could go out there and ride straight away. Well, I was riding up until last year, and then I had a horse of my own that sort of. Uh, just got injured, so and I've just turned sixty, so I think it's time to stand down. Yeah, um, it's listen. I could I could do it, but it wouldn't be very long, would it? <laughs> and, and you're enjoying life now? Yes, great. I have my own farm, and uh, I've great family. Um, I'm very lucky. Good on you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you.